Father, we praise you. Lord, I pray that tonight that you would walk among us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us. Lord, that you would open our eyes. God, I pray that you would show us Christ tonight as holy, holy, holy Lord. And that we would stand in awe of who he is. I pray that you would grow in our hearts, Lord, a desire for his return to come quickly and to come soon. Lord, show us our great need for him. Lord, I pray especially that you would help me now. I pray, Lord, that you would give me your hand of peace, Lord, of rest, and that you would just speak to us clearly from your word. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight, I invite you to turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 49. And uh, tonight, I want to look at the return and the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a pretty cool thing that because God has made all things about His Son, that we can turn even to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and consider Jesus, and consider His return and His reign As you're turning, uh, I'd like to direct your attention to verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49. And just to set you up in the context, what's going on, we're here at the end of the patriarch Jacob's life. And before he dies, he blesses each of his sons. And the the descendants of Jacob, his, his sons, are going to be the 12 tribes of the nation of God. And so, uh, before he dies, Jacob prophesies, he blesses each of his sons, and, and he speaks things that will happen within their tribes. So tonight, I just want to pay attention to what Jacob says to the tribe of Judah. And I'm going to actually read verses 1 through 2, and then skip to verses 8 through 12. This is Genesis 49. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the, the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He, he couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes, he washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes." His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. Imagine with me for a second. You're in Africa, deep in the jungle, in the rainforest, and you're going on a trek. You're going on a hike. And if you can just see for a second, the scene is full of green. Everywhere you look, you can't even see the sky. There's trees above you, leaves all over the place. Everywhere you look, there's life surrounding you. And it's, it's fun. It's cool because you're going into an uncharted territory. You're not on a trail. You're going through the midst of the deepest jungle. It's hot and it's moist. It's exciting. But you also have this sense that you're not alone. You're a trespasser. You're in, you're in the territory of the life that you're walking through, and you sense that you're being looked at 
from little eyes all over the, the rainforest, all, all over the jungle. You can't see what's looking at you, but you can feel this sense of you are being spied upon. And then as you're creeping one foot over the next, you hear a little growling sound. And as you peek around a large green jungle leaf, you see a ferocious lion. And you're frozen. You don't know what to do. But as you look a little more closely, it's okay. The lion is sleeping. And for a moment, as you stare at this lion, you're caught up in its beauty, its majesty, its royal mane, its, its strong muscles. It's, it's a beautiful creature. But as you tippy-toe one foot over, you start to feel this sense of fear. As you now have a better view, right beneath its teeth is the meal it just ate. And you're reminded that could be you if you make another move. This is the kind of picture I think that Jacob paints. Yes, Jacob paints of the prophecy of his son Judah. The tribe Judah would be a victorious tribe of kings, of victory, a fierce warrior type tribe. And when this group of people, the Israelites, the, the sons of Jacob, move into their conquered land, what we see spoken of here is exactly what happens. For instance, many, most of the kings of God's people come from the descendants of Judah. We, we can think of King David, one of the most famous kings. And God gave him victory when he went to war. Many of the Psalms that we read are David praising God. God, you were with me. If it wasn't for you being with me in that war, we would have had no hope. But God, God blessed David, and he was a victorious warrior. Even in his, his young youth, we think of the story of David and Goliath. God gave David victory like a lion. And not just the kings, but God blessed the tribe of Judah because it was in Judah's capital city, Jerusalem, that God put his very own presence, his own glory in the temple. So we see that what, what is spoken of here, this prophecy over Judah, is true. But tonight, I don't want mainly to look at what happened to the tribe of Judah, but I want to consider, I want to consider the, the descendant of Judah, Jesus Christ, in whom all these things are fulfilled. And so, simply tonight, I want to consider three different characteristics of Jesus from this prophecy. And these look, as I said, at the return and the reign of Jesus. And the first of these tonight, the first point is that Jesus is a fierce warrior. The first point, Jesus is a fierce warrior. That may not be the first thing you usually think of when you think of Jesus. We might consider him to be gentle and loving and peaceful. And and all those things are true. But what it speaks of here, this kind of lion-like quality that that God foretold would come from Judah is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You might think of an Israelite king. One of his roles was to be a warrior. For instance, we know that when David committed his sin with Bathsheba, it was the season when kings should have been at war. It was that time of the year. Also, just as God sent the Israelite people into the promised land to take over the land, and God used them as his direct hand of judgment on those people who inhabited that land, so God will bring Jesus to judge the earth one day. Jesus is God's fierce warrior, and he will bring judgment upon the earth. This is not a, a unique idea to Genesis or to, to, to other parts of the Bible. For instance, consider Psalm 2. 
If you look through Psalm 2 sometime, it's really quite amazing. The psalm is about a day when the kings of the earth, the rulers of the world, will gather together against God and against his anointed one, Jesus. But they will not win. Instead, Jesus will receive from his Father as an inheritance the nations of the world. And the last verse in the psalm gives this warning. This is Psalm 2, verse 12. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's a pretty contrasting statement. His wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are those who take refuge in him. May we take refuge in him. This idea of Jesus being a a lion-like character from the tribe of Judah is fulfilled ultimately. We read of it in Revelation Chapter 5, I'm going to read now from that chapter, and starting in verse 1, it says, this is John speaking in in, in his vision, I saw in, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. If we were to keep on reading in the following chapters of Revelation, we would see that each of these seven seals, with each one that's opened, Jesus sends judgment to the earth. We we, we see ultimately his just judgment in his return in Revelation 19. It says in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Truly, Jesus is a fierce warrior. And like I said before, if you're anything like me, and you're hearing this, you might be thinking, that is not the way I usually think of Jesus. I think of this calm loving Jesus, this compassionate Jesus. And those things are 100% true. But I think this is exactly what Court was teaching us on Sunday. We serve a complex God. Jesus is fully love and fully compassionate, but he is also fully just. Jesus, he loves people who are sinners. He loves to hang out with people like me, but he hates sin and he will bring judgment on the world. So considering, again, our our first text here in Genesis 48, just the first two verses, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Are you God's enemy? Are you Jesus' foe? Or are you his brother? 
do you praise him? And if, if we listen to the New Testament, we're told that we're all enemies, or that we all have been of God. And that's not a good place to be, because when Jesus goes to war, he never loses. He's a fierce warrior. However, there is great news. By God's grace, by God's grace, Christ has given us forgiveness for all who will trust in him. To all who put their hope in him and repent of their sins, no longer are we God's foes, but we're his friends. We're adopted into his family, and we are becoming the children of God and the brother of Jesus. So I just stop here and say, will you please praise him as a brother? Will you please receive him as your Savior? Because we don't want to be against Jesus. We want to be for him. And if you have received him, there's great news. The New Testament tells us that if God is for us, no one can be against us. If Jesus is on your side, no one can be against you. You don't have to fear of any person, of anything, of any evil spirit. If Jesus is with you, he never loses a battle. And he will defend you. So tonight our first point is that Jesus is a fierce warrior. But we might consider, okay, Jesus is a fierce warrior. He's going to come. He's going to bring his judgments. But why would he do that? And of course, one answer is that he's just, and that's true. But that's just the beginning, because when Jesus comes to bring his judgment, he's not just going to stop there. He's going to come and to rule. And that leads us to our second point tonight. Jesus is the promised ruler. He's the fierce warrior, but he's also the promised ruler. Look with me again at our text, Genesis 49, in verse 10. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. This idea of a scepter, it's an ancient symbol of authority. Of, of, it's something that a king would hold to say, I have this dominion, this power. If you've seen the movie Aladdin, you might know that Jafar, the enemy, has a scepter in his hand. He thinks he has power, but... He doesn't. And so, so the idea here is that the scepter will not depart from Judah. That is, the rule, the kings, will not depart from the descendants of the person Judah. And that's what we see. As we've already said, most of the Israelite kings came from, from Judah. And so we see King David is, in essence, given this scepter to rule. And when he dies, he gives this scepter to his son, and so on and so on. But it doesn't stop there until Shiloh comes. Well, what does that mean? What does Shiloh mean? This can be a, a confusing term, Shiloh. It's possible that it has to do with, with peace or, or rest. And so we could think of this as when a man of peace or rest comes, or when he brings a period or time of peace and rest. Other versions of this, other Bible versions, have rendered it a little bit differently. The NASB renders it, as I said, until Shiloh comes. They also offer up until he comes to Shiloh or until he comes to whom it belongs. The ESV, the English Standard Version, renders this until tribute comes. But I think the point is, is the same, that the scepter will not depart from the line of Judah until it comes to the promised Messiah. And both, both Jewish and Christian Bible scholars have looked to this passage as a messianic prophecy that, that Jesus will come. And if we were Judah and Jacob was prophesying over us, and this is all that we heard, we could say, this is just awesome. I know that because God is, is speaking through Jacob, that through me is going to come a king. A king unlike any other king. To him, the scepter will rest. He will bring a kingdom unlike any other. 
And we could have faith in that and praise God, and that would be enough. But because of God's grace, today we have this entire Bible, and we can read through the whole thing to the end, and we can see who this promised ruler is. And uh, I thought it might be helpful and fun tonight if we just look at a few key passages in the Bible to see how God fulfills his word. His words are never void. He keeps every word that he speaks. So for the next few minutes, I'm just going to flip through the Bible and read a few passages that really show how God brought this to fruition. You don't have to flip around with me. You're welcome to if you want. But I think that would be helpful. And actually, I want to back up a little bit and and start in the very beginning, because this will help us understand this promise to the full. And I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read now from Genesis 1, verse 27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had done, and behold, it was very good. God gave Adam and Eve this, this authority, this dominion, a scepter, if you will. And it's as if the first king was Adam. God gave him this ability to rule, and he gave him a job to take care of his garden. And this garden wasn't like the gardens that you and I have. When I was growing up, my family occasionally, we would plant a garden as a family, and it wasn't really the most fun thing. Actually, I didn't really like it at all. Um, at the beginning of the gardening season, the, the ground was dry, so we'd have to get, occasionally we'd get out a rotor spader, which would mash up all the dirt, and we'd have to take shovels, and we'd have, to, we'd have to make holes and plant seed, and then we'd have to water it, like, every day. And if we'd miss a day, that wasn't very good. And, and we were so happy when we saw just a few tomatoes or corn. My mom loves corn, so we'd eat a lot of corn. But, um, but it really wasn't that great of a garden, and we worked pretty hard for it for it. And it was by the sweat of our brow that we did this. But this is very different from the kind of job that God gave to Adam. God said to Adam, you're going to have dominion over the creation. And somehow when when God gave this ability, this king-like ability to Adam, when Adam went to bring forth plants and fruit, it happened. And it was easy for him. It was enjoyable. It was restful for him. God gave Adam dominion. However, that's not how it remained. Of course, we know that the fall came, that Satan came and tempted Adam, and everything changed. Um, Dr. Chris Miller, an Old Testament professor, gives a helpful kind of a story for us to think about this. It's as if Adam was in the garden doing his thing, and then the serpent came to him and said, Adam, how you doing? I noticed that you might want to eat that fruit up there. And if you want, I can just hold that scepter, the one that's in your hand there for you, so you can reach up. And so Adam says, well, sure, thank you very much. Here you go. And as he reaches up, he gets the fruit that's forbidden. And when you reach back to get his scepter... It's gone. And Satan has taken it from him. And so we know from this comes the curse. And God curses the ground. And from this moment comes pain. 
and death. Adam and Eve, they returned to the dust from which they were made. This was not good. But there is hope. Because in that moment, God gave a promise to Adam and to Eve. He said that through the seed of the woman, there would come a promised one who would smash the head of the serpent. And he wouldn't do this without himself having a bruised heel. But eventually, there would be one who would descend from the woman who would take back, in essence, this dominion, who would receive back this scepter. And this idea of dominion returning to a promised one is throughout the Old and New Testament. So as, as we flip through the passage we're looking at today, this, this idea in Genesis 49, it's a reminder. God's not forgotten. The scepter will come. It will not depart from Judah until it comes to the one to whom it belongs, until it comes to the, the m- m- Messiah. So God hasn't forgotten. In fact, he's giving us more information. He's saying, first it will come from the woman, but now we're even looking smaller. It's going to come through Judah. And if we flip our Bibles through hundreds of historical years, we'll come to 2 Samuel in chapter 7. Again, this is, of course, this will be in reference to David, King David, who is a descendant of Judah. And God says to him this promise in verse 12. When your days are complete... And when you lie with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant. Literally, the word there is seed after you. Who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And then on in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And in one sense, this is a reference, I think, to the the very son of David, Solomon. But in a bigger sense, this is a continuation of this promise that God's not forgotten. He's going to bring dominion back to the human race through Eve, through Judah. And now we see it's going to come through David. He's going to give this person a kingdom that will endure forever. And then if we continue through the Jewish history, of course, what's about to come is some very low times in their history. After David, after Solomon, things start to get bad. Even during Solomon's reign, many of the Israelites, they turn to foreign gods, to pagan religions that that surround them, and they turn away from their God. And and God brings judgment. He sends exile. He sends foreign leaders, foreign, foreign armies to come and to take away God's people from their land. And they are in foreign lands. They don't even live in the promised land anymore. And so one could definitely wonder, is God going to keep this promise? I mean, should he keep his promise? We don't even deserve it. We've turned away from our God. Why would he even remember that one day he would bring a king, a a dominion, a scepter holder through our line? And yet that is the very question that is answered in the book of Daniel. Daniel, who was a prophet in the exiled land of Babylon, receives many visions from God, reaffirming God's plan for for his people. In in Daniel chapter 7, God gives Daniel an amazing vision about things to come. And first, he speaks of four beasts that will rise. And these are four different kingdoms. One will rise and then fall. The next will rise and fall. The next will rise and fall and so on. But after that will come a king unlike any of these other kingdoms. And this is where we pick up in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. 
And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. God is not forgotten. In fact, God remembers and he is planning that this one will come, this seed that we are looking for. And this is good news. Even for the, the Israelites who are in exile, they can have hope. God's going to do this. This is going to be great. And the Israelites, they come back. Eventually, God is merciful to them. They come back to their promised land. But when they set up their temple and, and their city, there is no king established. And in fact, the prophets cease. And for 400 years, biblically speaking, there's silence. And it's as if God is forgotten. All that was promised, it seems to be over. This is a very sad thing. Until one day, in a little forgotten city called Nazareth, there's a little girl, and an angel appears to her one day. And this is what the angel says to her. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name his name, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. It's amazing. And after this little baby is born, in Matthew 2 verse 1 it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Quite startling, isn't it? It's as if maybe God is remembered. And as this young boy, Jesus, as he grows older, he, he starts to teach his disciples about a kingdom that is going to come. The kingdom of God is what he calls it. When he teaches them to pray, he says, Pray like this, Father, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And not only that, this Jesus, he, he has this kind of dominion over the creation that no one has ever seen before. With the very word of his mouth, storms are calmed. He can walk on the water. He can multiply loaves of bread. That's more efficient than any garden that Adam ever had. He curses a fig tree and it dies. But not only that, he heals many people. The creation obeys him. When Jesus is led to his death, he's tried by Pilate. And at that moment, when he's being tried, he confesses to Pilate that he is a king, but not a king of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. And when he's crucified on a cross, a sign above him reads, the king of the Jews. God remembered, but... Not the way we maybe thought he would. This isn't even the best part, though. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't just have dominion over, over the loaves of bread. He, in fact, was, was not killed by the creation. Adam and Eve, they were, they, they were made to go back to the dust of the earth. But Jesus... Jesus was victorious over death itself. It's as, if, it's as if God wanted Adam and Eve to rule over the creation, but they were ruled by the creation. 
But Jesus was the ruler of creation. Jesus is the promised ruler. He has come. God has kept his promise. And let me just ask you, isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing that we serve a God who keeps his promises? Every word that he's given us in this Bible we can trust is true. And when we open the Bible, do we really trust it? Do we really believe that it is true? God has given us his word. And if he was faithful to tell us that he would bring about Jesus, and he did, will he not also be faithful in telling us that Jesus will return? Truly, Jesus will return. We can bank on it. Jesus will return as a fierce warrior, and he will set up his ruler as the promised ruler. And that leads us to our final point. As the promised ruler, what will this Jesus do? Well, he will set himself up as king. Tonight our points have been Jesus is a fierce warrior. He's a promised ruler. Finally, he is a gracious king. In this final and third point, Jesus as a gracious king, I want to subdivide into three little subpoints here and just ask the question, who is this king and what kind of kingdom is he going to bring about? Look with me, please, again now back to our Genesis 49 text. Picking up in, in verse 10 at the second half of it. And to him, this is the one to whom the scepter will come, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so this first subpoint I'm titling an international kingdom. This gracious King Jesus is going to establish an international kingdom. Now, if, if we were Judah or his brothers, we might we might be able to believe, okay, one day Judah will be our leader. We will praise him. We will bow before him. But when, when Jacob says that to him will be the obedience of the peoples, this is a pretty amazing thing because this isn't talking about the family. This isn't the people of the, the, the nation of God, the Jewish people. This is the peoples of the earth. This is foreigners who will one day give their, their allegiance, their obedience to this coming Messiah. This is an amazing thing. Yet this is not the first time that we, we hear of this in the, in the Bible. Go with me back in your mind to Re Re Revelation chapter 5. This is the, the chapter that we were in before. Speaking of the line of the tribe of Judah who is coming. And, and it says of him here right after he is selected to open up the seal. It says that they sing this. Worthy are you, that is Jesus, to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Jesus' kingdom will have people from every tribe, tongue, nation. Every people will come and obey him. Jesus has a heart for all peoples. The other day, Heather and I, we were eating at a Chinese buffet. It was delicious. And as I was sitting there, kind of just soaking in the moment, I captured the scene in my mind for a second, and I I was looking around. There was mostly Asian employees there working. And then sitting down enjoying the food, there was Caucasians and African Americans. And for a second, I just was praising God. This is so cool, God. You made all these people different, yet they're all made to reflect you. And it was like this, in a very small way, almost reflected what heaven will be like. Heaven will, will encompass multicolors of skin and hair and, and eyes. God has this heart for all nations and cultures. But then as I was sitting there, I was brought, I think God led me to a different kind of viewpoint, one of brokenness, as I wondered, do these people know you, Jesus? 
And, and that's Jesus' broken heart for every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus, he, he desires greatly to be with the people who are in Africa, who have never heard his name, the tribes in the midst of the rainforest where the lions dwell. Or he, he desires to be with those in Asia where, where Christianity is not allowed, or with the Eskimos in the North Pole. And everywhere in, in, in the middle, Jesus desires those people, and they will be in his kingdom. Will we tell them, Will we tell the nations and the peoples about this king? Will we go? Is God calling you to go? To tell them about the king who, who will invite them into their kingdom one day? As Americans, we are so blessed. For whatever reason, God has seen it fit to draw many peoples of different nations to make this their home. They've come here, foreigners. And we have the gift to be able to invite them to know the coming king, Jesus. Will we do it? Will we pray for them? Will we have Christ's heart for them? Our gracious King Jesus will have an international kingdom. And that's the first sub-point. The second one is that our gracious King Jesus will have a bountiful rule. He'll have a bountiful rule. Continue with me now, please, in Genesis 49, going on to verses 11 and 12. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. I don't know if you guys have any donkeys at your house. I don't. But if I had a donkey and I needed to go to the store to buy something, maybe, when I got to the store, I probably wouldn't tie my donkey to a vine. Uh, that might break, and especially in the day that Judah was, was around, that would be a very precious thing. Farmers spent a lot of time, just like my family and I did, except they would spend a lot more time trying to raise up these plants. But it, it seems here that when the Messiah comes, it'll be a day where you can just tie your donkey to a vine, because vines will be so strong and so plentiful that we will not have to worry about breaking a vine. Or if, if I was Judah in his day, they probably didn't get to wash their clothes very often at all. I'm sure water was precious to them. Uh, but however, when the, when the king, Jesus, comes, we can wash our clothes in grape juice. There's so much of this bountiful blessing upon us. This is very different from the world that we live in today, from the world that's been cursed from, from the very beginning, not the beginning, of, but, but when Adam sinned and the fall came to our world. When Jesus comes and brings his bountiful rule, he will reverse the curse. Today, we, we deal with sickness and death and pain and disease. As we grow older, our eyes begin to shut. As, as we die, our teeth will rot. But in the day when Jesus comes, he will bring a kingdom where his teeth and our teeth will be white as milk and our eyes will be healthy, darker than, than wine. But I just got to ask you this question. Where does all this bounty come from? Where do all these blessings come from? Who can enter into this kingdom? Do they just come from nowhere? And this is the moment in the sermon I've been waiting for, the most anxious thing I've been trying to get to. These don't come without a cost, but these were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the gift that we have from our king, the, the fierce warrior Jesus Christ. He surrendered himself at the cross for his coming kingdom. He bought us with his blood, and when he died on that cross, he drank to the very last drop the wrath of God.
the wrath that he is coming to bring one day, but he drank it for those who will trust in him, who will make him his king. And instead of of being crowned as a ruler with a, a crown of diamonds, he was crowned with a crown of the curse of thorns. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he did it to buy for himself us his kingdom. So this bountiful rule that Jesus will have, it's not for a bunch of really good people who deserve it. It's a bunch of messed up people who were bought by the blood of the Lamb. And I am thankful for that. So, so far we have an international kingdom with a bountiful rule. So this will be a great place. We'll have all the food that we need. There'll be no more pain, no more disease. We'll be with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have died before us, even those from around the world. We got it made, right? That's pretty much all we need. Except we're missing the last and most important piece that our king, our gracious king, is a personal king. Look with me one more time, please, at our text in Genesis 49. It says... In verse 12, his eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. The first time I read this, or not the first time, but as I was preparing for this, when I read this, I thought of Song of Solomon, this, this poetic love song in, in the Old Testament about two lovers who are praising each other for each other's beauty and, and, and how, how God has made us to be beautiful in each other's eyes. And the New Testament tells us that as the church, we are Christ's bride. And, and we are waiting with expectation for Jesus to come, just like a, a bride would wait for her husband. I remember just over six months ago, before Heather and I got married, I was anxious. I wanted that day to come. I was excited. And it was like every day just stretched out as I wanted it to come, especially when, when I was in California for a few months it's like every day of the last few weeks I was in California was like a week. And the thing I wanted more than anything was just to be at home with Heather. And when, when we got married, it was awesome. And it still is. It was great. And that is what God gives us here. This, this description of Jesus is to draw us into his beauty. We are to look into his eyes, dull or darker than wine, his teeth white from milk. The New Testament, in the book of Revelation, it tells us that the church and the Spirit, His bride, Jesus' bride and the Spirit say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And in response, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. Surely Jesus is coming soon, and we will be able to look into His eyes, into the eyes of our Savior and our King, the Lion of the tribe of Judah.